This is the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. And today's documentary is the story of a pioneering adventure in Irish overseas aid that happened at the end of World War II. Narrated by Aidan O'Donnell, this is the hospital the Irish shipped to France. On the edge of a town called Saint-Lô in Normandy in northwestern France, a small but dignified ceremony is held every year to mark St. Patrick's Day. Speeches are delivered, flags are run up flagpoles, anthems are played. Normandy's weather is often wet, so the rain dawn gathering feels quite authentic for St. Patrick's Day, except the crowd is relatively small and everybody speaks French. C'est pour la Saint Patrick. Voilà, c'est un hommage, un hommage et un remerciement. Many people who turn out have never been to Ireland. They don't know that much about the country or about its patron saint. They come out every year because a group of Irish people came here right at the end of the Second World War and ran a hospital at the very spot where they're holding their ceremony. In 1944, towards the end of the war, this town, which is just a few dozen kilometers from the Normandy coast, was bombed almost out of existence. In response, the Irish Red Cross in Dublin prepared to do something it had never attempted before, to gather the staff and contents needed for a hospital and to plant it in France. So in the autumn of 1945, groups of Irish nurses and doctors and other workers began to make their way to what was left of the town of Saint-Lô. This is a little-known episode in Ireland's wartime history, but it gave rise to Saint-Lô's Hôpital Irlandais, its Irish hospital, and the hope this represented in the aftermath of World War II is still remembered in Saint-Lô today. I'm Phyllis Gaffney and I retired a couple of years ago from the French department in UCD and I lectured in French for about 40 years. Phyllis Gaffney's father, the Dublin pathologist, Dr Jim Gaffney, was one of the medical workers involved in the Irish hospital in Saint-Lô. He was born in 1913. Yes, he was just just in his early 30s when he was in Saint-Lô. He had studied medicine. He was a Trinity graduate and um, had worked in Cambridgeshire for a number of years. So I I think he was seconded to go to Saint-Lô. He was recruited in the autumn of 44. Piecing together the story of the hospital in Saint-Lô became a project for Phyllis, a piece of historical research, but also a very personal one. Her father died before she was born. I never met him. He was he was killed in an air crash, the first Aer Lingus air crash in North Wales before I was born, three months before I was born. So obviously that was a big impetus to my doing this research. During his time in France, Dr Jim Gaffney regularly rode home to his family in Dublin. 31st of August 1945. Dearest mother, the only item of interest to record we are tripped to... That's his writing. The heading, the letterhead is interesting. The lads are all very pleasant and I'll enjoy it here, but it'll be more interesting when we get things going properly. Josie, his younger sister, kept all of his letters. That's what set me off on the story. I'll just say before I stop here that there is literally nothing for us to do just now, nor won't be for some time. 
So we're trying to get in on the language as far as we can. In the late 1990s, Phyllis Gaffney took time off from her job. She spoke to people in Normandy, dug into archives, and pieced together the history of this one-time Irish hospital in France. It was unusual as a piece of research because it told me something about my father. So it, it served two purposes. Jim Gaffney was just one worker in a group of around 60 Irish people who set up and ran the Irish hospital over a period of about a year and a half at the end of the Second World War. They were doctors and nurses and general hospital staff from around 20 different counties. It was one of the first Irish overseas humanitarian projects. Unlike some of the other staff in the Saint-Lô hospital, he had lived abroad. Many of them had never been abroad before, and it was a, an adventure for them. Cheerio for now. When writing, the Irish Red Cross Hospital, Saint-Lô, France, will get us all right. Affectionately yours, Jim. This is London. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. The Irish hospital was a response to the disaster that had occurred in Saint-Lô towards the end of World War II, when mainly British and American forces launched their attack to retake Europe from the Germans in June 1944 with D-Day. Saint-Lô is a very ordinary, rather picturesque town. It was the capital of the Manche region. Almost 12,000 people lived in Saint-Lô at the time. It was the size of maybe Enniscorthy today, or Mallow. And what happened is, on the evening of D-Day 1944, that's the 6th of June 44, was extraordinary. It was completely unexpected. It was bombed to the ground by the Allies. Well, the bombing took place over a series of nights in early June 44. Saint-Lô was held by the Germans, and so it stood in the way of British and American soldiers on their move into France. So the town became a target for the Allies. Allied planes dropped waves of bombs on Saint-Lô and on many other towns in Normandy. Ultimately, on the places and the people they were coming to liberate. There had been an attempt to warn the people by the Allies. They had dropped loads of leaflets suggesting that the people should flee and evacuate the town. But what happened to those leaflets was that the wind blew them to the east and in any case people thought, well, the Allies will be here in the morning, why should we leave? So they stayed and there were quite a lot of casualties. When the bombing stopped, there were hundreds of people dead in Saint-Lô and hundreds more died of their injuries in the hours and days that followed. The town would become known as the capital of the ruins. One in ten buildings remained standing. And when I say standing, you know, tottering, teetering. So it, it was really extraordinary. It looked like scenes from hell. The municipal hospital was destroyed. There were other hospitals suffering damage too. There was no pharmacy left in the town. Complete destruction. Sanlo today is a pretty unremarkable town about three hours' drive west of Paris. But if you walk around the town, you see statues and monuments dedicated to American soldiers or to civilian victims. The main church still has shells lodged in its walls. Parts of the church have been bricked up. I'm on the edge of the town square, and I'm at the steps of what at one time was the town prison. But when you come down the steps and look back up, you can see that there's about six feet of wall on either side of the entrance. 
which is what this was, and then that's it, because this prison was destroyed when the Allied bombs fell from D-Day onwards, and dozens of people who had been locked up by the Germans, some of them resistance fighters, died buried in the rubble. And so this fragment, this little part of the prison, has stood here since as a memorial. With most homes destroyed, the residents of San Lo who'd survived became refugees in the surrounding countryside. There was no shelter and little infrastructure. Nicole Arrival, who lives in the town today, says her mother was one of these refugees. My mother lost both her parents in the space of six months, in 1944, I think. One of her brothers was missing for a long time because he'd been injured. He had shrapnel in his foot. That was from when my maternal grandmother had been killed by a bomb. It was horrific because the children had to bury their mother right there on a farm. And they took off down the road to get away from the fighting. They headed south and stayed on the farms. That's what people did. Though some refused to leave and some crept back when they shouldn't have into the cellars and lived in terrible conditions for months. Ireland at this time, with the war entering its final year, was still talking about World War II as the emergency. Ireland had stayed neutral through the fighting, but it was still affected by the war. With a swinging stride, men and women of the Irish Red Cross march in procession before Mr. De Valera in Dublin. They're all voluntary workers in the cause of charity. And the nurses especially have been called upon to perform the hardest tasks in time of emergency. The Irish Red Cross was set up in 1939 and it worked very closely with the Irish Army, the Irish Army Medical Corps, and it had hundreds of branches all over the country. And it was mainly concerned with pursuing the war effort at home, giving first aid classes, uh, ensuring that there would be medical supplies for the hospitals. And that, in some cases, meant volunteer women coming in to make bandages and blankets and so on. But they also had some overseas projects, such as sending parcels to prisoners of war on the continent. In 1943, the Irish Red Cross tried to send a mobile hospital to the fighting in Europe. But Britain was more interested in recruiting Irish doctors than in a hospital unit. The following year, an offer was made to the French Red Cross, and it was accepted. And the plans very quickly developed into an offer of a hospital, a civilian hospital of 100 beds, which was to be set up in a place yet to be decided. Cork Examiner, 2nd October 1944. Public notice. Irish Red Cross Society. Hospital unit for France. The staff was to be about 50 or 60 people. Ads were put in Irish newspapers for staff. Doctors and nurses are wanted. Also, members of the society willing to act as engineers, ambulance mechanics, clerks and interpreters. There were over 600 applications from all over Ireland. Irish Independent, 12th of October 1944. Head of unit to France chosen. Colonel T.J. McKinney has been chosen by the Irish Red Cross to act as an officer in charge of the hospital unit in France. It's understandable that the army was involved. In fact, they procured the 
a secondment of Colonel Thomas McKinney, who was to head up the operation. And he was a very good choice. He was head of the Army Medical Corps at the time. He had gone to Spain with um, some aid in 1943. And he spoke fluent French, fluent Spanish, fluent German and good Irish. So he was and he, he knew how to organize things. In early 1945, Colonel McKinney went to visit devastated parts of Normandy, including its most badly damaged town, saint Lo. And when he got back, he made this appeal on Irish radio. In saint Lo, the scene of our prospective labours, I was told that many of the former residents have returned to live in the cellars. Though personally, I got the impression that all the cellars must be choked with debris. Saint-Lô may be described as 100% flattened, the work of a few hours from the air. The world will expect the Irish Red Cross as representing a nation which had escaped the ravages and horrors of war to play a full part. Help, much help, will be needed. The cost of the hospital was to be funded by donations from Ireland and by sweepstakes, an early version of a national lottery. Very quickly, costs of over a million euros in today's money were run up. And there were still all the staff salaries that would have to be paid. By the spring of '45, it had been agreed that the French Ministry of Reconstruction would provide the, uh, if you like, the hardware, the, the buildings, the sanitation, the plumbing, the electricity, and that the Irish would bring everything else and send everything else. One of the people they would send was Nurse Mary Frances Crowley, who worked at Dublin's Eye and Ear Hospital. She was from Wexford and in her late 30s. She took up the job of matron for the Irish Hospital in San Lowe. My name is Bernie, Bernie McNamee. I'm a niece of Mary Frances. And I remember her telling me all about going to San Lowe, which was a big thing in those days, and it is very interesting to read about it. It was a lovely time in her career. It was a lovely thing to do. Mary Frances Crowley would become a very important figure in later years for nursing education in Ireland. But for her family, she was simply anti-Mooring. She wasn't particularly tall, but she had a very imperious kind of stature. You couldn't miss her. If she walked into a room, you couldn't miss anti-Mooring. She would stand out. And yet she had a gentle voice. She didn't have a strident voice or anything. And a pleasant uh, face. Always wore her hair sort of scraped back in a bun and always wore a hat. Her first job was to hire staff. Then it was time to start collecting all the materials to build and to stock an entire hospital. Only those who had the privilege to assist with the preparation and organisation can estimate the colossal task it was to transship a complete hospital from one country to another and to set in motion every department fully equipped and staffed. Among Mary Crowley's papers, Phyllis Gaffney discovered a talk she'd given about the Irish hospital and about all the logistics involved. The preparations consisted of preparing a list of the required departments, medical, surgical. All of the equipment, equipment including furniture, chairs, tables, beds obviously, bed linen, 
that's only a start. Cooking utensils, refrigerators, fuel, medical appliances, toilet requirements, dressings... They also packed enough food for six months. There was whiskey for enough for about a year. Cigarettes. Yes, hospital staff smoked in those days. Vegetable seeds for the garden. Uh, material for the chaplain. You know, there, was, there had to be a chapel, of course. And vestments for the priest. Everything. You name it. It was phenomenal. I mean, there were, what, 3,500 crates. And as a team, we assembled all the requirements in Lincoln Place, Dublin. It was a phenomenal undertaking, when you think about it. And a lot of the equipment was provided by volunteers. Women volunteers going into hem sheets and blankets. You know, it was all provided basically from nothing. In the summer of 1945, with the war over in Europe, but still raging in other parts of the world, the materials were ready to be shipped from Dublin port. Six ambulances, a wagon, a lorry, generators, hundreds of tonnes of food and medical supplies, and 200 beds. The storekeeper who had the job of looking after the material once it arrived in Normandy was the writer Samuel Beckett. Years later, he would win the Nobel Prize for Literature and see his work and his name become world famous. But at this point, he was 39 and had published some work, but was still unknown. He was based in France, in Paris, and had spent the war years helping the French resistance movement and then working as a farm labourer. But with the war ending, he'd come back to Dublin for a visit. The writer and Beckett specialist, Jerry Jukes, says at this point he was essentially stuck in Ireland. He's in Dublin... He's at a loose end. He discovers fairly early in his visit back to his mother, whom he hadn't seen for five years at this time, uh, that he wouldn't be allowed back into France because he wasn't a... He didn't have a valid carte de séjour. So there he was with a flat in Paris, a life partner in Paris, a possible future in Paris as a French writer and no way to get there. One of the doctors who was due to travel to France, Alan Thompson, told him about the hospital. He knew Beckett and he knew Beckett's situation and he suggested to him that he should apply for the job at the Red Cross to be a storekeeper and interpreter. Um, and Beckett interviewed for the job and got the job. In August 1945, Beckett, Alan Thompson and Colonel McKinney travelled to San Lo as an advance party. The last fighting in the World War was finally ending that month. It was now over a year since the Allies' bombs had fallen on the town. When you think of what Europe must have looked like, Dresden was 95% destroyed. Hamburg was 80% destroyed. Berlin was well over 60% destroyed. And that's in the heartland of the Nazis, right? There was ruination all over Europe. There is a letter uh, written in on the 19th of August, 1945, from San Lo by Beckett, uh, saying that the uh, the place it's been it's been raining for days, and the place is a sea of mud, and that he has he has very great fears about if it's like this at the end of the summer, what it's going to be like in the winter, and not only that, but there's there's actually no place to live in. The place is utterly destroyed. In fact, he shared a bed 
with uh, one of the doctors from the hospital in the early days before the the accommodation was was became available. Uh, he shared a bed in a room with a man in another bed, um, and I, they had a bucket in which to wash. There was no no sanitation, no plumbing. It was fairly provisional, as he says himself. Samuel Beckett wrote several pieces about his time at San Lo. One of them was a script for Orti Radio that, it seems, was never broadcast. In it, he refers to the difficulties involved in setting up the hospital and in working with different groups of people, what he called the home temperaments and the visiting temperaments. I suspect that our pains were those inherent in the simple and necessary and yet so unattainable proposition that their way of being we was not our way, and that our way of being they was not their way. It is only fair to say that many of us had never been abroad before. And of course, they got more than they bargained for, because not only was he a superb interpreter from French, but he also had passable German, uh, so that he was able to liaise with the German prisoners of war which, who were used in the building of the hospital itself. A few weeks later, more doctors arrived to join the advance party. These included Phyllis Gaffney's father, Jim Gaffney. Shortly after, he rode home to his sister Maureen. He said that when they arrived in San Lo, it took almost an hour to find the hospital. One street of ruins looks very much like another. There are acres of empty spaces, that is, the rubble piled up 10 to 20 feet. Many of the streets can be traversed only on foot by stepping from one pile of bricks to another. Many cellars still lie under the debris, and demolition work goes on slowly but surely. Digging the other day, they found the body of one of the local bakers and two of his assistants. We saw the post office, which is gutted. You can see the sky through the empty windows and roof. It would have been about the size of Mountjoy Police Station. By now, progress had been made on the wooden huts that were going to make up the hospital buildings. There are ten white huts, quite large, made of wood, lined with asbestos and bright with many windows and electric lighting. Our clothes are thrown on a chair beside the bed or over one of the low-cross ties under the ceiling. The eight of us sleep, eat, write and read in this hut, which is the only complete one. The others are being wired or otherwise finished. Can you tell us where we are? The layout of the Irish hospital in Saint-Lô is still clear today for Pierre Lebeau. He has a special connection to the hospital. He was born there not long after the Irish arrived and also had family members looked after in it. We're standing right on the ground where the Irish hospital was constructed. There's nothing left except a single hut, which was part of the Irish hospital. There was all of this land, which slopes down. Because it was on a slope, it was built slightly terraced. And the buildings were all connected by covered corridors, which let you move from one department to another, from maternity to radiology, or to the operating theatre, for example. The Irish staff continued to arrive in batches, and in September 1945, an outpatients department opened for people in Saint-Lô. 
people would start queuing at half six in the morning to be seen. There were lots of uh, accidents, unexploded mines, crumbling masonry, people uh, being, being injured in that kind of way. There were loads of diseased men who had come back from labour camps and from the war with, with uh, continuing medical problems. The matron, Mary Frances Crowley, remembered that the hospital served a much wider area than just the town. The ambulance service served the whole Normandy area and did invaluable work at a time of great need, always ready to go to the scene of an accident or to an isolated home to bring the patients in. By October, there was an X-ray service in place, as well as Jim Gaffney's pathology lab. He set up a pathology lab in one of the huts, and when I say set up, it was rigged up. You know, recycling was before it was invented. So in, in, his, in his lab, um, it was agreed uh, that it would service the whole area. So it wasn't just the samples from the patients. It was any pathology work that needed to be done in a, a radius of, I don't know how many, miles around saint Lou. That's the Irish photo of um, the Beckett, always with his hand in his pocket, you know him. <laughs> That's my dad. They're German prisoners of war. This is Colonel McKinney. That's Tommy Dunn. Beckett drove regularly to the ports to collect supplies and Irish workers who were arriving. He also went to Paris, where on one occasion he showed Jim Gaffney the sights. Sam took me into Notre Dame, which was magnificent. There is a nice anecdote about Beckett and Tommy Dunn, his assistant. But he pounced on a little rosary beads, which was on a stall in Notre Dame, to bring back as a little present. Beckett saw a shelf of souvenirs on sale and he bought a rosary beads to give to Tommy Dunn which my father noted and thought he was a very nice man it was very thoughtful they did make good friends with many allied bases around there wasn't there were vast American hospitals who lent them and gave them gifts of things there were RAF bases and they used to go fraternize with them they even went for dinner once in a local convent Becca didn't think that convents were such nice places. He'd never known convents could be such nice places. They were given a seven-course meal by the nuns. And showers, they'd know, that was the time when they'd no showers, no sanitation for months. The sanitation coincided with the arrival of the first female staff. In November 1945, more nurses arrived. A radiographer, an obstetrician-gynaecologist. By December, the outpatients department had seen over a 1,000 people. The wooden huts that made up the hospital were now ready, and the wards finally opened for inpatients. There were now six doctors, ten nurses, and nine general staff, who had all travelled from Ireland. Mary Crowley, who was the matron of the hospital and had been recruited very early on, was waiting to be called. She turned up, she travelled, and arrived on Christmas Eve in 1945. Beckett met her and drove her very fast in or through the snow in order to make midnight mass in the ruined cathedral. And I can remember her telling me... Bernie McNamee, Mary Crowley's niece. She said the whole roof was blown off the cathedral and they were looking up at the stars and the choirs were singing. And she said it was absolutely magical. After Christmas, Samuel Beckett finished up as storekeeper. He left the hospital and returned to his writing in Paris. 
the experience overall, well, he was run off his feet. He was extremely busy doing, you know, four jobs at once. And as he says in one letter, six people asking questions at once and he flops into bed every night exhausted. So after a few months of this, he is desperate to leave. He's mostly desperate to leave because he needs to write, this urge to write. And after Saint-Lô, interestingly enough, he writes in French. It's a very important turning point in the trajectory of his writings. No matter where you scratch at that period of five to six months in France with the Irish Red Cross, you come up with connections that reach right through the work. By early 1946, Matron Mary Crowley had a fully operational hospital. In the surgical unit, there were 26 surgical beds. A fine theatre, the walls covered with stainless steel plate and cork lino floor covering. It had all the most modern and up-to-date equipment. And there's a photograph of her there at her desk. But can't you see her Irish roots, St. Patrick's picture up on her, on her desk? But you can imagine with Auntie Maureen in charge, everything was run properly. And I'd say it was spick and span from top to bottom. There were a number of uh, German prisoners of war working in the hospital when it was running, in the kitchens um, and cleaning. So it was pristine, very, very clean with German standards of cleanliness. Normandy was an agricultural region which had helped in times of food shortages. Jim Gaffney recounted in one letter how grateful patients even left presents of food. On market day, a lady came with her son to Darley's outpatient department said she had a chicken for him in her basket. She had some shopping to do, would leave the basket there and call for it later. An hour later, Arthur was surprised to find a live chicken jumping around the pharmacy. There was also a busy tuberculosis ward full of men who'd contracted the disease in prisoner of war camps. And the Irish hospital dispensed the new drug penicillin and told its ambulance drivers to carry guns in case anyone tried to steal it and sell it on the black market for hundreds of times its normal price. Penicillin was very significant. Uh, It was absolutely not available, uh, pretty well unavailable for civilians. It was there for wounded soldiers. Anyway, it was a new drug. It was a wonder drug. There were two labour wards and a maternity ward, which was very welcome because it was quiet and clean and very much welcomed by women who had had to suffer giving birth in fields or in cellars during the the time of their trials. Antenatal and postnatal clinics were held weekly. The babies were born in the hospital, the mothers remaining in from 10 to 12 days. The modern, comfortable lying-in beds with the swing cots attached and mobile backrests added greatly to the comfort of the mothers and attracted much interest. The first baby was born in the hospital in January 1946 and was named Patrick Noel. Many others followed, some called Patrick or Michel Patrick, and others were named after Irish doctors there. One unmarried young woman walked 10 miles to the hospital, heavily pregnant, after her mother and her employers wouldn't have her give birth in their homes. And Nicole Arrivel, whose mother's family had been forced out of the town by the war, was born there too. I have a brother I never knew because he died when he was nine days old. 
qui est né en 44. He was born in 44. And I think the fact that my mother had lost a very young baby, nine days old, meant that when she was pregnant with me, she went to the Irish hospital. And I was born at the Irish hospital. In the 1990s, Phyllis Gaffney spoke to many people who'd been to the hospital or whose families had been cared for there. The hospital had a reputation too of allowing children play in the green spaces because it was a safe place for them to play. And the nurses were always singing so the patients remember. <laughs> and some patients still remembered English nursery rhymes that they'd learnt as children in the hospital. But also what they remembered very vividly was the just the, the, the decency and the, the niceness of the, the Irish staff, how, you know, Dr. Boland stayed up all night with a woman in difficulty and how they they seemed to go above and beyond the call of duty in, in what they were doing, their professionalism and that little bit extra. <laughs> For the matron, Mary Frances Crowley, the town saw the Irish hospital as a warm, welcoming place. The grounds were nicely laid out, with flowers and shrubs and vegetable gardens, and the general appearance was homely, bright and cheerful. And besides the constant stream of patients, their relatives and friends, no stranger, I think, ever passed without calling, and all received the hospitality of the house. Afternoon tea every Sunday. You could go and, and chat and have afternoon tea. So they were very flahulach uh, altogether. You know, it, there was a kind of a... It had a, a reputation for being a very warm, hospitable place. The Irish staff were encouraged, officially from the start, to get to know the people they were serving. They were invited to parties, they attended uh, dances, funerals in the town. Some of the hospital workers would spend time in a Sanlo cafe that had been improvised in the remains of a destroyed house. And they were often invited for lunch by the owners, Monsieur and Madame Théo. They went to drink in the café that Monsieur and Madame Théo set up in the ruined building. They went to race meetings. The hospital became a centre for parties. The Irish knew how to enjoy themselves. There was plenty of whiskey at the hospital, but there was also plenty of calvados and wine and cider. Jim Gaffney reported in a letter home that dancing had restarted in the town, in part thanks to the hospital. The local people brought to dances at the hospital are easy to entertain, as would anyone be who hadn't been to a dance for six or seven years or been allowed to. And that a record player had been tracked down for St. Patrick's Day, and that 80 people had turned up to dance. Some of the nurses and ourselves sang some Irish songs, which interested our visitors very much. At this stage, the hospital was operating at full capacity, so it was time for an official opening in April 46, just eight months after the first workers had arrived. We're looking at a poster, and this is genuine, this was among my father's things, um, a poster advertising the official opening of the Irish hospital. So, Ville de Saint-Lô, dimanche 7 avril 1946. Irish press. 
When the Irish hospital at Saint-Lô, France was formally opened, the townspeople spanned the streets with garlands interspersed with the Irish flag and gave the Irish party, who went out for the occasion, an enthusiastic reception. The ceremonies opened with the special mass celebrated at 9.30 a.m. There was an official luncheon at 12.30, and then the French and Irish parties were driven through the decorated town to the war memorial, also decked with the flags of both nations. In the summer of 1946, it was announced that the Irish Red Cross would hand over the hospital to the French that autumn. Irish funding was running out, and local French doctors, many of whom had now returned from army duty, weren't very happy that the free hospital was affecting their livelihoods. This caused consternation. The town council had an emergency meeting. They asked the mayor to write to de Valera. And the mayor even travelled to Dublin. Mary Frances Crowley remembered how people in the town responded. When it was proposed to withdraw the Irish staff at the end of September 1946, virtually the whole population of Sanlo and people from all over Normandy marched in procession to the hospital, carrying banners bearing the words, Please don't go, and San Lo still needs you. It was ultimately decided that the Irish would stay until the end of 1946. In December, nurses began leaving, and a farewell dinner was held just before Christmas. The hospital was handed over to the French Red Cross on the 31st of December 1946. Up to that time, 1,427 inpatients had received treatment. Consultations totaled 22,398. The total cost of the hospital to the Irish Red Cross was in the region of £80,000. In today's money, it had cost millions. The Irish hospital staff packed up, said goodbye and boarded trains and trucks. And on January 2nd, 1947, hundreds of people in this small town turned out to wave them off. Over the next two decades, the town of San Lo was gradually rebuilt. Families were housed in prefabs, reconstruction began. People gradually forgot that at one point after the 1944 bombing, it had been suggested that the town simply be abandoned for good. And after the Irish left, the town's hospital continued to function. It did continue as the Irish hospital, just as Beckett had foretold, you know, long after the Irish have gone and their names forgotten, it would be always known as l'hôpital irlandais, the Irish hospital. Pierre Lebeau, who was born at the hospital when the Irish were running it, found himself returning to the wooden huts years later. After the Irish hospital was handed over to the French Red Cross, the hospital continued until 1956, run by a religious order. Afterwards, in 1957, I think, the Memorial Hospital of Saint-Lô, built by the Americans, came into operation. So the Irish hospital stopped and the buildings were used to make a secondary school. And I went there. I went there for school for two or three years. But we all knew we were at the Irish hospital. The hospital doctors and nurses returned to work in Ireland in a range of jobs, 
Some of them had found a husband or wife on the project or in the Normandy region. People met up occasionally in Ireland afterwards and sang the songs they'd learnt over there. The matron of the Irish hospital, Mary Frances Crowley, went on to become an important figure for nursing education in Ireland. But she kept in touch with some of the German prisoners of war who'd worked in the hospital. Her niece, Bernie McNamee, still has a present that Mary Crowley received from a prisoner who'd returned to Germany and worked in the coal mines. From William Osho, prisoner of war, 1944-47, to Miss Crowley, matron, Irish Red Cross Hospital. First coal mined on his return to Germany. Mary Frances Crowley died in 1990, not that long before Phyllis Gaffney began her research into the hospital. On his return, Jim Gaffney continued his medical career in Dublin and got married and had a family, but then died very young. He went on to be a lecturer in Trinity and, and he was then killed um, in, in, in January '52. He was coming back from a conference in Cambridge where he had read a paper on leprosy, I think. He was travelling home on an Aer Lingus plane, the St Kevin. It took off from London on a Thursday evening, headed for Dublin. But it hit bad weather over North Wales and crashed into a mountain. It was the first fatal Aer Lingus crash. All 20 passengers and three crew members were killed. In 1998, a book of grateful testimony was brought from Sanlo to the Irish Red Cross in Dublin. My daughter was born in 1946 with my gratitude. Or, j'ai été soigné à l'hôpital. Merci aux Irlandais. I was treated in the hospital thanks to the Irish. Much of the testimony was collected by the woman who'd been friends with the hospital workers and had run that local cafe in the ruined town, Madame Théo. And the conversations Phyllis Gaffney had with people in Saint-Lô and the research she did became a book, Healing Amid the Ruins. The town's attachment to its historical Irish hospital doesn't seem to be weakening. When the town started building a new primary school recently, it was decided to call the school the Ecole Samuel Beckett, in memory of the playwright's time as logistics man at the hospital, long before he became known for writing some of the most important drama of the 20th century. He died not long before Mary Crowley at the end of 1989. For Beckett specialist Jerry Jukes, the short time at the hospital would remain important for Beckett. I think the key here is the humanity in ruins. I think it was very excited, buoyed up, sustained by the thought that a place of devastation, which had been bombed almost out of existence by the Allies, friendly fire, if you like, that Irish people, his compatriots, came bearing the gifts of a hospital and penicillin and medical expertise and just general helpfulness and that they were obliged to do that. In his radio script for RTE that he wrote the year the Irish were running the hospital, Beckett suggested that even after the staff left, it would be known as the Irish Hospital. 
and he made a further prediction. I mean, the possibility that some of those who were in San Lo will come home realising that they got at least as good as they gave, that they got indeed what they could hardly give, a vision and sense of a time-honoured conception of humanity in ruins, and perhaps even an inkling of the terms in which our condition is to be thought again. These will have been in France. Close to 200 children were born in the Irish hospital in 1946. Today they make up an official group and occasionally meet up. And some of these children of 1946 turn out every year when the town marks St. Patrick's Day in front of a monument that now stands at the hospital site. We all have people in our families who were helped, or friends who were helped, not just medically, but also emotionally and psychologically, because there were all sorts of suffering that had to be looked after or eased, so I think it's important that we remember. Today, Irish humanitarian workers are in many difficult places around the world. The legacy, in a way, of that early hospital in a field of French mud. People from outside coming with this vote of confidence that Saint-Lô had a future. The fact that other people from outside saw that this help was needed and it came. I do want this to continue, this memory. The Irish did a lot for Saint-Lô. And in particular for us the children of 1946, and all our families who were looked after here for almost 10 years in the same place. It was an important place in our lives, and it's marked us. We will never forget what the Irish did for us. The hospital the Irish shipped to France was narrated by Aidan O'Donnell. It was produced by Aidan and Sarah Blake. Sound supervision was by Damien Chanel. Readings were by Donal O'Hurley, Connor McKay, Joanne Ryan and Connor Lovett. The audio of Bernie McNamee is courtesy of Kira Gillen of Love Audio Stories with thanks to RCSI and Accenture. The documentary was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Until next time, thanks for listening.